Hello and welcome to the latest installment of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news in Hoosier Law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of Indiana Lawyer and your host. Thanks for joining us. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. As we settle into the holiday season, we've got the news you need to know from the Indiana legal profession to finish out 2022 strong. Plus, after the headlines, you can hear my conversation with Indiana Tax Court Judge Martha Wentworth. So let's get started. Today is Wednesday, November 30th, 2022, and these are your headlines. It's hard to have a news podcast these days without talking about abortion, and our episode this week is no exception. Let's send it over to Indiana lawyer reporter Katie Stancombe for the latest on abortion litigation in Indiana. Katie? Following a two-day emergency hearing that involved hours of questioning and testimony, attorneys for Indianapolis OBGYN Dr. Caitlin Bernard and Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita now have to wait for a judge to rule on the doctor's emergency injunction motion. Marion Superior Judge Heather Welch granted an emergency hearing to Bernard after the abortion provider filed suit earlier this month seeking to stop the attorney general from attempting to access her patient's medical records, specifically medical records of a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio who received an abortion from Bernard this summer. Rakita's office began investigating several consumer complaints filed against Bernard following the national spotlight she received after announcing she had provided abortion services to the child. Bernard's name went viral on national news after she publicly stated in July that she had performed an abortion on the Ohio girl who traveled to Indiana for the procedure. The AG's office issued several subpoenas for medical charts from Bernard's abortion patients, prompting her to sue both Rakita and Scott Barnhart, chief counsel and director of the Attorney General's Consumer Protection Division. Rakita's attorneys maintain that they need the records to determine if Bernard violated privacy laws or rules of professional conduct by speaking to a journalist about the patient. Bernard testified in court on November 21st, fielding questions from the AG's counsel about patient privacy, when and how much information she disclosed about the rape victim to the news media, and whether she timely filed a child abuse report to Indianapolis authorities. She testified that she did everything she needed to do to report the child's abuse and that she has cooperated fully with investigations already underway in Ohio. But the AG's office claims she also had a duty to report the case in Indiana, regardless of where the crime occurred or where the victim resides. Kathleen Delaney of Delaney & Delaney in Indianapolis and pro bono counsel Arnold & Porter are representing Bernard and her medical partner, Dr. Amy Caldwell, in the suit. Delaney spoke to reporters at the close of the emergency hearing, saying that the evidence presented in court, quote, proved Bernard fully complied with all requirements for reporting the care that she provided, end quote. She says that Bernard is hoping to stop Rakita's, quote, political agenda and accessing the medical charts of her patients. Check back with the Indiana lawyer for continued coverage on the case. Back to you, Jordan. Thanks, Katie. Next, here's Indiana lawyer editor, Olivia Covington with news about a case involving another Indiana Attorney General. Thanks, Jordan. The case I'm talking about involves former Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill, who was in office from 2017 to 2021. If you're a regular Indiana lawyer reader, you likely know that the second half of Hill's tenure was marked by sexual misconduct allegations that temporarily cost him his law license and ultimately his job. Although he's no longer in office, the situation continues to follow Hill. The four women who accused him of sexual assault, former Democratic state lawmaker Mara Candelaria Reardon, and former legislative staffers Gabrielle McLemore-Brock, Nikki DeSilva, and Samantha Lozano, 
have filed civil suits against Hill in both federal and state court. The federal case has seen a lot of action, most recently with a ruling in the defendant's favor this month. The defendant isn't actually Hill anymore. He's been terminated from the federal case, although he's still the defendant in the related state court case. But in the federal case, the defendants are now the Indiana House and Senate, whom Brock, De Silva, and Lozano sued for Title VII violations, including hostile work environment and retaliation claims. On November 17th, Indiana Southern District Court Judge Jane Magnus Stinson entered summary judgment in favor of the defendants on those claims, determining that the three women had not demonstrated that the legislative bodies, as their employers, violated their federal rights. But Magnus Stinson was quick to note that her ruling should not be taken as minimizing Hill's actions. In fact, she condemned the former AG in strong terms. Attorneys for the women didn't respond to my request for comment about the court ruling or about any plans for appeal, and no notice of appeal had been filed at the time I'm recording this. The women have taken their case to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals once before, ultimately losing on their claim that the state, not the legislature, was their employer. As for the state case, which also involves former Representative Reardon, the Marion Superior Court held a hearing this month on Hill's motion for summary judgment. The online court docket does not yet show a ruling from that hearing. Back to you, Jordan. Olivia's been following this case since it was filed back in 2019, and she'll continue to keep an eye on it. If you want updates, our website is the place to look. Shifting gears to some law firm news, the Indiana Supreme Court Disciplinary Commission has handed down guidance on how law firms should handle imputed conflicts of interest. The gist is, if one lawyer at a firm has a conflict of interest with a client, the whole firm should generally decline to represent that client. That comes from Indiana Rule of Professional Conduct 1.10. According to the Disciplinary Commission, quote, the duty of loyalty dictates that a law firm should decline to represent or withdraw from representing a client when any individual lawyer at the firm or joining the firm is conflicted from the representation. This is the situation unless the conflict is personal to that lawyer or unless the affected clients have provided informed consent, end quote. As with all ethical situations, there's rarely a one-size-fits-all path to follow. The commission recognizes that in its opinion and offers example scenarios to help law firms as they navigate conflict of interest issues. You can read each of those scenarios in the full advisory opinion, which is linked on our website. Speaking of law firms, we have a couple updates for you from some of Indiana's largest firms. First, Frost Brown Todd, which has an office in Indianapolis, has announced a merger with California-based firm Alvarado Smith. The merger will become effective January 1st, giving Frost Brown Todd more than 575 attorneys in 17 offices across nine states and Washington, D.C. That will include 17 attorneys in three California offices, including offices in Los Angeles, Orange County, and San Francisco. Alvarado Smith will operate under the name Frost Brown Todd Alvarado Smith through 2023, then will fully take the Frost Brown Todd name in 2024. Meanwhile, Indianapolis attorney Tom Fraley has announced that he is stepping down as co-chair of Fagery Drinker Biddle and Wreath, effective April 1st. Also stepping down is Andrew Kastner, Fraley's co-chair who works in Fagery Drinker's Philadelphia office. Fraley has been a leader at Fagery since 2008 when he became chief executive partner of the firm then known as Baker & Daniels. He helped lead the 2012 merger of former Fagery Baker Daniels, where he was named chair and managing partner in 2016. Then, in 2020, he led the merger with Drinker, Biddle, and Wreath to form the firm as it's known today. 
Fraley will stay with Fagri Drinker and return to his law practice once he transitions out of leadership. The new firm chair will be Gina Castle of the Minneapolis office. Shifting gears again, it's time to start checking in with the Indiana legislature, which will begin its next session in January. Last week, lawmakers assembled at the Indiana State House for their annual organization day, where the caucuses lay out their agendas for the upcoming legislative session. The 2023 session that will begin in January is a long session, which means in addition to passing laws, legislators will also work on passing the state's next biennial budget before they adjourn in April. According to the Associated Press, Indiana's tax collections have come in higher than expected since the last state budget was enacted, which means lawmakers should expect lots of requests for additional funding. Among those requests is one from a commission appointed by Republican Governor Eric Holcomb, which has recommended that the state give a $240 million annual funding boost to county health departments, lifting them up to the national average, according to the AP. The governor's administration is also looking at how inflation is impacting state construction projects and at the need to increase pay to keep state employees. Republican leadership, including House Speaker Todd Houston and Senate President Pro Tem Roderick Bray, are supportive of the state budget, the AP reported, although Bray did caution that county health departments may not be ready to effectively use the additional money the commission is proposing. For their part, Democratic leaders are pushing for the legislature to hit pause on social debates, such as those over abortion or transgender athletes, but GOP leaders wouldn't commit to doing so. We'll follow legislative updates as they start happening, so stick with us in the new year for coverage from the State House. To round out today's headlines, let's send it back to Katie for a preview of a story she's working on for the next issue of Indiana Lawyer. Nearly three dozen models who sued several Indiana strip clubs and reached a hefty settlement in an intellectual property dispute are now defending their case against the club's insurance company, which says that it doesn't have to defend the clubs and pay up. The case stems from an underlying federal litigation involving 33 professional models. The women claim that their photographs were used for years without permission by two strip clubs for advertisement purposes on the club's social media accounts, violating the Lanham Act and Indiana's right of publicity statute, constituting unjust enrichment. In May 2021, an Indiana Northern District Court judge awarded the women $1.9 million in a settlement agreement an amount that Illinois Casualty Company, the club's insurer, says it shouldn't be responsible for paying. The clubs argue that as a result of the wrongful denial of duty to defend or indemnify, Illinois Casualty is directly liable to the models for the district court settlement judgment. The models are now seeking to compel arbitration, and judges of the Court of Appeals of Indiana listened to arguments from both sides of the case on November 18th. Check out the December 7th issue of The Indiana Lawyer to read more. Thanks, Katie. A note to our listeners, this will be Katie's last episode of the Indiana Lawyer podcast because she's beginning a new career opportunity. The Indiana Lawyer team will miss her, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Good luck, Katie. Okay, that's it for this week's headlines. As always, visit theindianalawyer.com for the latest in legal news. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear my conversation with Judge Wentworth. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. 
To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Indiana Tax Court Judge Martha Blood Wentworth joining us today via Zoom. Judge Wentworth, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. As some background, uh, Judge Wentworth was appointed judge of the Indiana Tax Court by Governor Mitch Daniels in January 2011. Prior to attending law school at what is now IU Maurer School of Law, she started her own business in Bloomington. And after graduating from law school, uh, Judge Wentworth began her legal career as law clerk to Judge Thomas Fisher. Uh, after that, she practiced law with then Hall Render, Killian, Keith, and Lyman, PC. And immediately uh, before taking the bench, she was a uh, director at Deloitte Tax LLP, leading their Indiana multi-state tax services. Uh, Judge Wentworth is active in various uh, professional, educational, and business organizations, a member of the American Indiana, Florida, and Indianapolis Bar Associations, former chair and continuing member of the ISBA Taxation Section, a member of the Indiana Judges Association, and a member of the Planning Committee of the National Conference of State Tax Judges, among others, I'm, I'm sure. In addition uh, to writing numerous articles and providing tax continuing education, Judge Wentworth has taught state and local taxation as a uh, professor at Indiana University for more than a decade at the Kelly School of Business, as well as classes at IU McKinney School of Law and IU Maurer School of Law. So, you know, to start, typically I open with this question with all the judges and attorneys we've talked with. Um, why did you decide to pursue the legal career? Well, that's a great question. Everybody has different reasons. Well, when I was 15, I went to my parents and said, I finally know what I want to do when I grow up. I want to be an attorney. And they were sitting at the dinner table and they smiled at each other and patted me on the back and said, isn't that cute? You'll be a teacher or a nurse. So I became, I went to school and got my teaching degree and I was an English major and I got a master's in psychology, but I always wanted to be a lawyer. It was always in the back of my head. When I started my own business in Bloomington, the most fun I had was the tax planning. When was I going to buy a new heating unit? When would I do those things and how could I depreciate that? It was very fun. It was all the federal taxation I was having fun with. So I ended up going back to school to become a federal tax attorney. And of course, you can see how that worked out. I don't do any federal tax. I'm a state tax attorney and have been most of my career in law. But that's why I did it. And I am so happy I did. What was it about your time as a clerk under Judge Fisher that made you think, you know, you'd want to leave the tax court maybe one day? Well, I never thought I would. First of all, Judge Fisher and I are not that far apart in age. I was a non-traditional student. I went back well, 10 to 15 years. I was 10 to 15 years older than my classmates because I had done other things. I had my, my two girls. I had my two children. And so I was approximately his age. Plus, I, if he had stayed the entire time he could have stayed, I would have probably been way too old to take the bench. So I never even considered it, although it would be the only position I knew that I would ever be competent at as a judge. Because my entire, as I said, uh, my career, once I got done with the tax court, especially after I left Paul Render, was completely focused on state taxation. But I loved being at the court. I loved Clerking, I would suggest anyone out there starting a career that clerking is the best start because you're, you get to see 
a neutral position. You're never looking for one side's answer or the other side's answer as the right one. You're looking for which of all answers is right. And it gives you a really good start to think about most people when they litigate, they just look at the good positions for their own clients. But if you clerk for a court, you have to look at everybody's best positions and everybody's weak ones. And that's the best training because if you know your weakness of your opponent, you're a leg up. So that's what I, I loved it. I loved every bit of it. I fell in love with state tax there. It's much better than federal. Sorry, all you federal people out there. <laughs> there have only, uh, obviously you know this, but there's only ever been two tax court judges um, and you're one of them. This is a, a pretty unique position. Um, can you kind of give just a little bit of insight as it, what your day-to-day -day looks like? Sure. Um, we are unique. Indiana should be proud. Outside the state, I do participate in a lot of national tax organizations. Outside this state, not just from me, but from Judge Fisher before me too, the reputation of the Indiana Tax Court is we are the gold standard because we are a judicial court. Um, there are nine judicial tax courts in the nation. And the rest of the tax courts that are the de novo trial courts of the initial controversies are executive agencies. So they are paid by and, and managed by and administered by the governor. Um, whereas the judicial tax court is has the protections of separation of powers. So we're truly independent here. My day-to-day it changes with the with the docket how many cases we have that are filed, which has been a real merry-go-round since I took the bench almost 12 years ago. Um, it was much more consistent as it built up when Judge Fisher, as the first judge, as it built up, it became much more consistent with him. But a lot of changes came when I took the bench. So we've had to manage a shrinking docket. Some of the issues are huge, but the number of cases would, would shrink. So my day-to-day -day looks like um, we monitor the cases that are filed and see what they are. Uh, we make sure that we look at those cases and figure out when they're going to have the milestones in the life of that case. When do they have to file briefs? If it's a property tax case, first we have to have the record because I sit, I'm a unique court. I'm a unique court in the whole nation. It's just so unique. All cases coming up from property tax, which would be from either the Indiana Board of Tax Review or the Department of Local Government Finance, any final determinations that are challenged by taxpayers on, from those two agencies come up to me and I'm a record reviewer, just like the Court of Appeals almost, not exactly, but pretty much a Court of Appeals. But the 65 plus taxes administered by the Department of Revenue, those come up to me de novo and I'm the trial court. So we have different uh, ways of setting the milestones. Our property tax things are automatically set on a briefing schedule that's driven by my tax court rules. Whereas the Department of Revenue, we have a case management planning meeting and the parties uh, usually jointly agree 
about the milestones. When is discovery to be initiated? When is it done? Those kinds of things. So that's one thing we do first when cases come in, we try to monitor our schedule. Second thing that we do a lot of is monitor our tax court rules. We try to keep them uh, sometimes, the, oftentimes every year, in fact, the legislature will change some tax laws. So we have to make sure that our tax court rules are consistent and, because inconsistency is, gets people, makes traps for the unwary. And sometimes we catch them and sometimes we don't until somebody else points them out. But we try to be uh, cognizant of that. Plus, we're always changing our tax court rules to make our procedures smooth. We want things to travel easily from, say, the Board of Tax Review's decision to, to our process. And we don't want to have holdups and barriers to that. So we've, I've done a lot more reaching out to the agencies I review to try to work out any problems that we have. And we've been very successful at doing that. What are some of, I guess, the most common types of cases that come across your bench? And is it pretty statewide or most of the cases coming from, you know, more urban areas? Well, again, that's a constantly ever-changing picture of my docket. It's interesting because when I was a clerk here many, many years ago, uh, most of the cases that were in the court were Department of Revenue cases. And so I'd say it was 70-30, Department of Revenue, income tax, sales tax, that kind of thing, versus the property tax. When I took the bench, that was pretty much the same case. But quickly, Mitch Daniels had an amnesty. And so all those cases that were Department of Revenue that were in my court at that time, many of them settled under the amnesty and disappeared. So that year was a very odd year. And then uh, thereafter, a few years after, when Adam Crump came in as the, um, when Adam was there as the commissioner of the Department of Revenue, he instituted, and Bob Rennes has continued, a um, policy of settling cases that has essentially taken away almost all cases from the tax court. I don't want to say that's a godfather program, but it seems like it is. So we don't get very many Department of Revenue cases like we used to. Um, so I'd say we're 70, maybe it vacillates 70, 30 property tax versus Department of Revenue. The Department of Revenue cases tend to be corporations, bigger corporations. So they wouldn't be as rural as a general rule. But there are a lot of people who will come pro se and want to prove the point. And actually, pro se people sometimes are pretty good. Some have won. And property tax as well. We have this year, we've had a lot of pro se cases. We've had people, I think that the inflationary term we've taken as a, as a nation, people are trying to lower their costs. So we've had a lot of people complaining about not getting the homestead exemption. So that's been interesting. And that's mostly pro se. So those might be rural, although I can't think of one that's, that really is. As far as the other property tax cases, they tend to be, again, corporate taxpayers, and they would not be as rural 
So they would be more urban areas, not necessarily Indianapolis. It could be Fort Wayne, just, you know, South Bend or Michigan City or something. Obviously, uh, you know, COVID-19 impacted the, all the courts. Um, you know, how did it specifically impact your court? Not just operations, but the cases that came before you. Was there any kind of shift in, in what you saw coming across your desk? Well, I think like all the courts, we had a diminishing. That's another reason the dockets diminished. Mm-hmm. I don't think the plenary trial courts, I think they still had a lot of business. Mm-hmm. But the appellate courts, for some reason, we saw a downturn in our dockets. And since I'm such a small court, I mean, it's one judge. Mm-hmm. And right now I have a court administrator, a staff attorney, and a clerk. And that's it. And we do everything. We do the IT, we do the HR, we do everything with the very kind assistance on occasion of the Court of Appeals folks and the Supreme Court. But nonetheless, we're very small. But we got on this right away because we were told to go home. So we immediately got everyone uh, the tools they needed to work from home. We made sure we were educated ourselves on Zoom and its capabilities. We did at first have to put a few things off a little longer while we learned, but it was not long before I had two five-day trials right away on Zoom. And that was really a good thing for us because we felt that it was the court's duty to make sure that Zoom did not interfere with the process of going to court. So we took it on ourselves first to learn about Zoom, and second, to think of all the uglies that we could think of. What could go wrong? No one in my court ever claimed they were a cat or weren't a cat. And we were very meticulous about trying to think of that. In addition to that, we did some things that we would send out to people to educate them to our litigants. And my court administrator, uh, Karen Graves, had meetings, at least two meetings, with the opposing counsel, or if it's pro se, with with them, on Zoom to make sure their background was good, that they knew about the what to wear, how to turn everything on, how to share a document, and when they could and when they couldn't. We had an issue with, we got a lot of confidential information, even if someone's social security number is confidential. So we had to deal with how are we going to keep our constitution says court has to be open. And if I'm having court in the state house, anybody can walk by and walk in because that's their constitutional right. On the other hand, they are not entitled to hear confidential information. So we had to figure out how to manage that so that we could protect the confidential information, but at the same time, protect the public's right to have to participate. Uh, One of the first things I did when I took the bench was to turn all of our hearings, trials, and everything into a streaming. We record it, we stream it, and it's archived. And so we took that, and uh, we do the same thing when it's on Zoom, but we would go off the record, and we left it in the the, uh, wheelhouse of the attorney with the confidential information. It was their duty to tell us when they were going to discuss some confidential information. So then I would go and turn off the streaming, tell the, I would announce to the public that we have to go off streaming 
I don't know how long it will be, but we will come back on. Um, so keep checking back when we when we are uh, on the record again. Or actually, it's on the record, but we would delete that if it's confidential. We would mark it out if it was on paper, and so we can't mark it out if it's verbal. So we would go off. But we uh, I've been on many panels across the nation talking about remote proceedings, and we are pretty organized compared to other states. Other states do have some different software they use to share documents. They do use SharePoint, which we use. They also have some other things that I'm investigating. But I think the, the onus is on the court to make sure a trial goes smoothly, whether you're in open court or whether you're on Zoom. So we have really tried hard to, to fill that void. And we've not, I've not found Maybe this is just because I'm the judge and no one's been telling me the truth, but I haven't had any complaints about it. And my group, my clerks and my people and my, myself, I don't think it's any different. What are some of your hobbies outside of the courtroom? I believe someone told me you're a pretty tremendous painter. Is that right? No, I'm not tremendous. <laughs> I, um, I, I started painting because my best friend was painting and she was, putting out these paintings that I never would have expected her to do. And she kept encouraging me to try. So um, I broke my ankle, gosh, 20 years ago. And when I was recovering from that at home, I'm thinking, I don't have anything to do here. <laughs> no, you know, because I was off of work. So I, I decided when I got better, I would go learn to paint. And I started learning, and, and this year, I'll just sing my own song here, I took second place in the non-professional category for watercolor at the State Fair. Oh. And I'm pretty proud of that. It was a painting of my grandfather's car that he manufactured that was driven by Louis Chevrolet in the 1914 and 1500. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, isn't it cool? Yeah. So I did that and I love to paint. And certainly at some point when I retire, I will have a lot more time to paint, I hope. <laughs> Last month, you went to uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts to chair the National Conference for State Tax Judges. Uh, could you share kind of what that all entailed um, and what are some of the national trends and issues that uh, tax court judges are, are seeing? Two big questions. <laughs> yeah. Conference for state tax judges is the only place where all tax judges in the nation are able to come together as a group and talk together, be collegial with each other, meet each other, talk about what the second part of your question is, what are the national trends. So we take that time. And, and if you're the chair, you uh, in the spring, we always have a planning committee to plan the kinds of seminars we're going to ask people to give. We also, each of us, um, give a few cases that we did during the last year, give a summary of them, and then we get up in front of our fellow judges and tell them why that case was important. And that spurs on a lot of conversation. And it's really important to understand that when I'm coming down in an elevator anywhere, in a hotel, at my own office, where I share an elevator with court appeals, anywhere I am, in a party, and someone asks me what I do, and I say I do tax. It doesn't matter if I say I'm the judge or I'm a tax attorney. 
the eyes roll back in the back of their head. And say, <laughs> I guess somebody has to do it. Horribly boring. Well, of course, I don't feel that way at all, nor do my colleagues who do tax work. But it's hard to find us. So it's very nice to come together and have people who care about what you care about every day. Um, you did ask me, and I didn't quite finish that one question about my every day. I also edit, write and edit opinions every day in some form. I also, and, and I'll just briefly dive, divert just for a moment on that because people are always so interested about how judges do that. Every judge does it differently. When I hear a case, let's say it's an oral argument, I'll hear arguments on both sides. I'll already know the facts. When it's an oral argument, the facts are there in the record, or I've had a trial, so I know them personally. And the arguments, then I go back and I write what I call initial thoughts. It's really just an outline. Sometimes it's prose, but it's how I write immediately think I want to, to decide the case. I give that to the writing clerk, and they do a first draft from that. They make it pretty. They put in all of the things that we typically put in, in the structure that we typically use. Once that's done, it comes to me to edit again. And this is where a lot of the big work happens. They, they do a lot of yeoman's, the clerks do yeoman's work of putting it all together in a big package. But then I get the fine detail. I make sure it says what it has to say. If there's a new, another case I want to cite to, I suggest that. But the editing process, sometimes it takes a day. But most of the time, I would say it takes a couple of weeks, maybe. Depends on what other things are going on. And that's really where the, the case comes together. So let's go back to the National Conference for State Tax Judges. That conference focuses on property tax. Not all judges do property tax and not all property tax judges do other taxes. So this, this wonderful property land use organization called the Lincoln Institute out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, sponsors, pays for almost everything and has for oh, 25 years of getting us all together and making, a, and we go to Cambridge every other year and then somewhere else off here. We've gone to San Francisco, we've gone to Indianapolis, they were here. So we go different places to come together. And um, we talk about just the process I told you about how I go about doing my, my opinions. We talk about how do you do yours? And we learn from each other because you, you don't really get taught how to be a judge. And one of the things you learn from is your colleagues. And you can learn from continuing ed too, but it's really great to talk to people. And I have made so many friends there, particularly right now, the Oregon tax court judge. And I've been seeking him out because our tax court was formed the two main models for our tax court that the legislature looked at were the U.S. tax court and the Oregon tax court. The Oregon tax court was the first judicial tax court. It had one judge. And we modeled a lot of what we do after that court. 
The thing is, the process of that court, the structure of that court has been changed over the years as necessary for the situation, and we have never changed. So um, I've been talking with him about how how they've changed, why they changed, what barriers they had to do to see if there's something I could recommend um, to the Supreme Court for us to do to make our court more effective, and especially since our docket is low. So anyway, all of these things have come from my contacts made at the National Conference for State Tax Judges. It's just a wonderful organization. The issues that are um, on everybody's across the nation. Well, I'll start with property tax. Property tax is always a problem because you get the bill and you see this huge bill and it's, it's sent to you. And so people see that and they want to lower. They don't like property tax because they get this big bill every year. So one of the things that's an issue right now is the homestead exemption, which is certainly happening in our court. Another issue is the big box stores. Big box stores are assessed property taxes because based on their bricks and sticks, property tax taxes the value of the bricks and sticks. Nonetheless, because big box stores are so successful, they bring in so much income to a county. The county wants some of that. So there has been a tension between how to get to the right number. Is it just the bricks and sticks or do you include something more? And so that has been a, a continuing throughout my time on the bench. That has been a big issue, not only in Indiana, but everywhere else. Oh goodness! So you were you were talking about um, you know different types of issues that you see. Obviously, uh, they talk about uh, you, you just stop with property taxes. So uh, right. what what else? So property taxes, the homestead exemption, the big box stores. There's one last one that's always an issue, and that's assessment. How do people appraise property? How do we get our assessments of the property? That is always a big issue. And since judges typically, especially judicial judges, but across the board are not appraisers and have never done, got degrees in appraisal or anything. Um, it's always an issue to train judges to understand the language and the process. So we do that at the national conference and it is always something we want to know about. From other types of taxes like income and sales and use, the issues in income tax right now uh, that are across the country, the biggest issue was in 2018, our world made a seismic shift because of nexus. What separates the girls from the women in state taxation and federal tax is federal tax is not interested in whether you have jurisdiction to tax, because there's only one jurisdiction. But in state taxation, you have 50 plus jurisdictions, and that plus can be huge because you have local jurisdictions now, like our counties, that have the ability to have local, local um, county income tax. We haven't done sales tax on the local level yet, but many states do. Louisiana has 
parishes, that's the same as counties, they have thousands. They each have taxing ability. It's a, kind of an administrative nightmare. So that issue, just the administrative nightmare of those kinds of issues is a national problem. But also Wayfair case was decided in 2018, June 22nd, and it's killed Quill. Quill was the case in uh, 1992 that upheld the fact that you don't violate the Commerce Clause by taxing a non-resident if they have physical presence in your state. So you have to have physical presence in the state to be taxed. That changed and was done away with. The precedent was killed as the only way to have the ability to tax someone who's not in your state. If you have physical presence, you still get, you still have the ability to state Indiana could tax an Ohio resident if they have physical presence in Indiana, certainly. But now Wayfair has said, if your only contacts with Indiana are virtual or economic, you have sufficient connection with the state for, for Indiana to tax you. So that is a change. We don't really, they never told us what economic and virtual contacts meant. So that leaves a, a, up to us judges. And it's very difficult for me, particularly about many of us are worried about not overstepping our role, which is we don't make law. We just tell people what the law says. And that's a very fine tightrope to walk on occasion. Um, but ever since 2018, people have been trying. So that's a huge issue. It has ramifications for the one income tax, net income tax exemption we have that's federal, called Public Law 86272. And so the viability of that exemption from being taxed is something that people are looking at throughout the nation. Another thing is transfer pricing. Um, there's a strategy that is very legal and, and above board if done correctly, that you can isolate some of your higher profit-making activities in a separate entity and put that entity in a low-tax state. That's not very favorably looked on by the state that they've taken away that profit from. So that becomes a contentious issue. And transfer pricing is a federal, originally a federal method of making sure that the economics between the two entities is correct so that everybody's getting their fair share of the profit to tax. And transfer pricing, Indiana, I think, is doing this pretty right. They've entered into agreements with taxpayers to forestall any kind of litigation. And I think they've been pretty successful. Certainly it's not coming up to me right now, but it is a big issue around the country. As far as sales tax is concerned, coming out of the Wayfair case, all sorts of states, I think Indiana also has done this. And remember, I only learn things when they're three years old. It takes three years to get to me, but but I think we have a marketplace facilitator tax, which means if you have a if you're selling books on the internet, you would collect the sales tax from those sales that were subject to sales tax. But there's so many people doing that, like Etsy, all these people, little guys. And how do you go after all those little guys for the tax? So a more efficient way to collect those taxes is to say, well, you little guys don't have to do it. 
But Etsy as a platform has to do it for you, for all you little guys. Amazon has to do it for all the people that are using Amazon as a platform to sell things. And um, so it's called a marketplace facilitator tax. And um, most states are going to it, but we're in the nascent stages. So it's that's growing pains across the nation. And those are the main things that people are talking about. I believe your term is up next year. So retirement is on the horizon. 2024. 24, 24, I'm sorry. 2024. 2024. So, you know, what are you looking forward to as you finish out your term? Um, and, you know, what are some things you're looking forward to about retirement and senior status on the is the next thing? What are, what are your plans? I, I will retire, sadly, because I have loved every minute of this job. I've loved every minute of my entire legal career, though. Um, and it's mostly because I love this subject matter. So I will be taking... Uh, I think the Chief Justice has already said that she's on board with this. I'm going to take senior status so I can still keep my hand in in that senior status because our docket is so low right now. I, um, unless my successor recuses, probably won't sit on many cases. Nonetheless, there's a lot of other things that the court, as the second highest court in tax in Indiana, Obviously, the Supreme Court is the highest that we can do to be a better communicator. And so I'm I'm going to hope to work out some plans on special projects for that. Um, maybe even having a litigation CLE or a, a tax CLE that we help uh, put together. I haven't really discussed this much with the CJ or um, so I don't know what we'll we'll see. But certainly that. I also would hope to write articles and things um, that I will have more time for. The other thing is, I, um, as I said earlier, uh, I think there are some things we could do to change the court and make it so much stronger and more efficient and more timely, um, which is what everybody would like. So I, I think that those are things that I'm looking forward to in retirement. Of course, I told you I'm looking forward to having some time to paint. And I will, I won't retire in January 24. I will, I will retire sometime next year, not early next year, but we have yet to determine an exact date. What's something that you would like lawyers um, to know about you and or the tax court? Well, one of the things I have tried to do uh, as the judge of the tax court is to go around and talk to bar associations throughout the state to non-traditional places, different colleges that they're not even doing tax and uh, student groups. I took my, before COVID, I was taking the court um, because we are the last statutory appellate circuit driver. Our statute says if they ask us to go to one of nine places, we have to go and hear the case there. So we have always been the appeals on wheels people <laughs> until that, and, and the Court of Appeals is doing that now, and I highly recommend that. So what I would like people to know about being a judge is, especially a tax court judge, numbers don't come out of my mouth when I talk. It's not math. It's just law. It's like law of anything. It could be family law. You're reading a statute. You're reading cases. The context is tax. So don't just shy away whether you're a judge or an attorney or a student. 
shy away from a whole area of such interesting um, law just because it might have a couple of numbers. I, I don't do anything but add and subtract. I don't even have to divide in, in what I do. So that's one thing about our court. Um, our court is pretty adept. Most of our cases from the Department of Revenue are summary judgment. That's how they're disposed of. So we're pretty expert in that, although people don't think we know anything about that, um, that we're mostly just numbers. So that would be something I'd like people to know. I'd also like people to know about, I guess they know this about me anyway, whenever they talk to me, that if you're going to do something every day, you better love it. You better just be excited about it every day, because otherwise we're going to spend all this time doing something that you're not excited about, that just doesn't make any sense to me. So the more you can get in an area and do things that you are really excited about, not only are you gonna be happier, but everybody around you is gonna be enthused by your enthusiasm. And so I, I have often been told that if you wanna be enthusiastic about tax, have me talk. I used to go around, let's see, my recent title for my little spiel that I give on state tax, on Indian tax, is called um, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, Taxes, Law, Not Man. And so we talk about some sex cases that are tax cases. Pole dancing in New York. Can you tax the admission to a pole dance when you can't tax the one to the Rockettes? There's all sorts of very interesting, we have a a famous uh, drug case in Indiana, the Worth case, and it was uh, our CSET tax, controlled substance excise tax, and it was a double jeopardy case of the, con of the U.S. Constitution. And one of the, there was a married couple, and one was found to, that they didn't have to serve time because there was double jeopardy and the other one wasn't. The fascinating case. So I, I think that people Again, see my enthusiasm. So that's what I would like people to know about the tax court and me. That will do it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Indiana Tax Court Judge Martha Blood Wentworth for joining us. Previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast are available on theindianalawyer.com and via your favorite streaming service.